Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Saving Grace, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Here's Pastor Nick. Except for one. One guy finally surrendered, and he surrendered, you know when? 1974. This guy surrendered 29 years after the war had already ended. While the rest of Japan was enjoying peace and economic prosperity, this group of soldiers held out for almost 30 years, suffering, fighting malaria, right? Having sicknesses and diseases. Why? Totally unnecessary. They refused to surrender, even though the war was already over. See, it was completely unnecessary. The Japanese military would even send people out to them, messengers and other soldiers, to tell them, hey, the war's over. You need to give up. But every time anybody got close, they would attack them. They would shoot at them. They refused to accept this. They refused to surrender. And and they would attack the messengers until finally this last guy, he got just so tired of fighting this unnecessary war that was already over. He got so tired of resisting all these messengers that he said, fine. And he laid down his weapon and he came home. And isn't that just a picture of so many of us, and this way that so many of us are. We refuse to surrender our lives to God, even though because of Jesus, the war is over. It's totally unnecessary. Jesus declared, it is finished. But instead of enjoying peace and life in him, you're still holding out, right? You're still digging in your heels, refusing to give up control of your life because you're afraid of what you might lose or what you might give up. And it's not like you're happy. You're miserable the whole time, like those soldiers on that island, but you're still not willing to give up. And maybe some of you, even today, listening to this, that's exactly where you're at today. You're like that Japanese soldier. You know that God's calling you. You know that he's declared the war is over. It's finished, but you're still holding out. You're still refusing to surrender your life to him. You're holding out. You're you're hostile towards the messengers he sends you. I want to tell you today, you can stop fighting this pointless battle. The moment you do that, the moment you surrender to him, you know what he'll do? He'll embrace you. He'll forgive your sins. He'll crown you with righteousness. He'll treat you as a son and as a daughter. And I pray that all of us would come to that point of full surrender and enjoying the fact that we have peace with God because of what Jesus did for us. The next thing we see, the next implication of the fact that we've been justified is this. Now we have access to his grace. I read another story recently about a young boy who had gone to Buckingham Palace. This was several years ago, um, but he had gone to Buckingham Palace, uh, a British kid, and, and somehow he had gotten this idea in his mind. And, and you know how kids are. If they get an idea in their mind, it's hard to get it out. So he got this idea in his mind that if he went to Buckingham Palace, that he was going to see the queen. So they went on the whole tour. They did the whole thing. And when the boy found out that he wasn't going to be able to meet the queen, he got upset and he started to cry and, and get, you know, you know, visibly upset. Well, Prince Charles happened to find out about this. And so Prince Charles said, well, I'm going to go talk to this boy. And he went to this boy and he told him, you come with me. And he led that boy back behind all the ropes and behind all the doors. And he led him right into the presence of Queen Elizabeth and introduced him and said, there you go. Here's the queen. See, that's what we have with Jesus. We have Jesus is that one who gives us access to the father. It's that backstage pass that gives us access to God where we stand in his grace. 
grace. And notice that it says that we stand in his grace. That's a position. It's a new standing that we have before God in Christ because of what he's done for us. We stand in his grace. You know what it means to stand in his grace, what that standing means for us? First of all, it means you don't have to prove anymore that you're worthy of God's love. You don't have to prove that you're worthy of God's love. It means that you can stop trying to keep a scorecard, right? To prove the fact that you've done enough for him to love you and accept you and bless you, that you've done enough. Or maybe when you haven't done enough, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not adequate. No, the account has been settled by Jesus once and for all. Secondly, you know what it means? It means that God calls you his friend. That's what it means to stand in grace. And thirdly, it means that the door of access to God and to his grace is permanently open to you. See, sometimes like when I'm working, I have an office at home and I'll shut my door when I need to focus and get some work done. But I've told my kids, hey, you know what? Even if that door's shut, it's always open to you. You can always come in no matter what I'm doing. I'm, you're not distracting me. I'd love to see you. And so my kids know open door policy. If they want to come talk to dad, anytime they're welcome to come and talk to dad. And that's the way it is with us as children of God. We have this open door policy where God says, anytime you're welcome to come in and, and, and receive freely from my grace and be in my presence. Next, we, we, the final implication that we see in this text, verse two, we have the hope of the glory of God. Verse nine tells us that we have been justified by Jesus' blood. And as a result of that, we are saved from the wrath of God. We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, that God isn't emotionally detached when it comes to sin, but he's emotionally engaged. And because of that, he doesn't just feel bummed out when we sin, but he actually feels upset. He feels wrath. And so in Jesus, he took the wrath of God on our behalf. So we no longer have to fear the wrath of God, but what instead it says, verse two, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the hope of heaven. You know, hope is defined as a happy certainty. It's not a pie in the sky, like maybe I hope that works out, like I hope I win the lottery. No, it's a happy certainty. And we can live our lives knowing that we don't have to fear death because for us in Christ, death is to go to a friend. Now check this out. The three benefits of justification, peace, access, and hope. The three benefits of justification, peace, access, and hope. These three benefits speak to the three tenses of salvation. See, that gospel is holistic. There's a sense in which you have been saved in the past. It's been declared. It's done. There's another sense in which you are being saved. God is working in your life and setting you free. And there's a sense in the future in which you will be saved. So we see that here. The gospel speaks to our past our past is taken care of and forgiven and set free. In the present, we enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus. And in the future, we look forward to the hope of heaven and the glory of God. And that brings us to the second act of love that we see here in our text. Verses three through five, we see this act of love. God's act of love is that he redeems our pain. I mean, sure, it's great that God saves our souls, but what about those of us who are going through really difficult things right now? What does the gospel make a difference in that? It makes every difference in the world. The gospel does. Look at what it says in verse three. He says, we rejoice not only in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we don't only rejoice in the fact that we're going to heaven one day. We also rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings here and now. Notice he doesn't say that we rejoice for our sufferings. That might be uh, morbid and masochistic, right? No, we don't 
necessarily always rejoice for our sufferings, but we always rejoice in our sufferings. And he tells us why we can rejoice in our sufferings. He says this, because we know that suffering produces all these things in our lives. God uses it in all these great ways. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us or put us to shame. We can rejoice in our suffering because we have the promise that God will actually redeem our suffering. And in the end, he will actually use it for our benefit and for his glory in order to make us into the people that he desires us to become. You know, we see this principle at work throughout the Bible and so many stories in the Bible. If we have it declared for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says this, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible tells us this, that God is not the author of evil. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't author bad things and evil. We do have an enemy, Satan, the evil one whose desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. But you know, one of the things that I always notice is that sometimes when people talk about Satan or, or evil powers or things like that, sometimes they talk about it as if, as if there's this kind of tug of war going on between evil and good, like Satan and God. And it's kind of 50-50, like we don't really know who's going to win. And sometimes it seems like, you know, Satan's kind of got the advantage and God's kind of on his heels and we got to get on God's side and kind of help him out and tug that rope or else God's going to lose. That's kind of how it's portrayed sometimes. I think that's, that's totally silly, and it's not biblical at all. See, you want to know what the Bible says about it? Check this out. One of my favorite things the Bible says on this topic, Colossians 3, verse 15. It says this, that speaking of Jesus, having disarmed the power and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public display, a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. What it's saying is this, that Jesus, by his death on the cross, he triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over all evil forces. So it's not a tug of war, right? It's already done. Like Jesus already defeated, already overcome, already triumphed over them. But check this out. See, this is the part that, that a lot of people miss in that sentence. Jesus did more than just defeat them. He actually put them to open shame is how one translation puts it. Or in this one, it says that he made a public spectacle of them. What does that mean? A public spectacle, open shame. See, this public spectacle actually speaks of a practice that was common in the ancient world. And when there was a war between two armies, when that one army defeated the other army, they would capture the prisoners of war, so to say, right? The enemy soldiers who they had been fighting against. But instead of killing them, them, they would give them what was considered a fate worse than death. Instead of killing them, they would chain them up and they would march them back to the, the victorious army's hometown, their, their main city. And they would take them and they'd march them through the streets naked and in chains. And they would just put them to public humiliation. And, and then they would go a step even beyond that. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, 
facing nine common barriers to Christianity. Wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. They would make those those losing enemy soldiers, they would actually make them their slaves, right? It's the ultimate humiliation that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to serve as a slave of the people who defeated you. Now think about what that means and what that's saying when we talk about Jesus and how he has triumphed over and defeated and put to public shame the evil forces. It means this, that Jesus not only defeated evil, defeated Satan, but he disarmed them, it says. But the ultimate form of humiliation, now everything they do, he uses to accomplish his purposes. Think about how frustrating that would be, right? You're an evil spirit or you're Satan and you think, okay, I'm really going to do something now. I'm really going to wreak some havoc. And then you do it. And then guess what? That also was used to accomplish God's purposes. That's why the Bible says things like this. It says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and for the salvation of many. In other words, the ultimate humiliation of Satan and evil forces is that God takes what they do and uses it for his purposes. So that ultimately it accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. Just imagine how frustrating that must be. Everything they do accomplishes God's purposes instead. Now, this is one of God's actions of love for you that were, that's listed here. That if you are his, then he, he redeems your suffering. In other words, your suffering, your pain is not wasted. The bad things that you go through, he will use those and redeem those for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And the fact is that, that uh, you know, if you want to, for example, if you want to run a marathon, you're never going to get stronger. You're never going to improve unless you are put to the test. And that's true in life. It's true in sport, but it's also true in faith. If you never push yourself beyond what you're comfortable with, if you're never pushed, if you won't do it, then somebody else needs to do it. Then you'll never make progress. And as a person who's been justified by Christ, here's what you can be sure of that your suffering, your hardships, your difficulties will never be wasted. God will use them to shape you and make you into the person that he wants you to become so you can fulfill the callings that he's put on your life. See, here's the thing. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you surrender your life to God, then you're still going to have problems and you're still going to have hardships and you're still going to have difficulties in this life. We live in a broken world with broken people. We're not who we used to be, but we're not yet who we will be, right? And so we're still going to have difficulties and hardships and pain in this life. But you have this promise that God will redeem those things. He will redeem your pain and use them for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And so the action and the implication, the action is that he redeems our pain, but the implication is we can run towards the roar. You can run towards the roar. What does that mean? So I read this thing recently about lions. Have you ever looked at how lions uh, hunt? It's fascinating, actually. You may already know this part, that it's really the lionesses who do the lion's share of the hunting when it comes to lions. Uh, the males don't do much, right? The females do most of the hunting. Now, the males, they're, they're the ones with the ferocious roar that's frightening, right, and scary, and they have that awesome mane that looks so cool. But the, the fact is that the females do most of the hunting. But um, here's the thing. The, the females don't have a big mane, and, and they don't have the big roar, but that's actually to their benefit. It actually helps them, because what they'll do is, the females, when they're hunting, they'll sneak up behind their prey, and they'll be able to be in the grass and remain 
perfectly still like a statue for long periods of time, completely motionless so that the prey doesn't even know they're there. And here's what you may not know. This was new information for me, is that the male lions actually do play a part in the hunting process. They play a small part, but a very important part in the hunting process. Here's what they do. See, the female lions will go and they'll sneak up behind the prey and they'll wait for really long periods of time, just totally motionless, and they're waiting there, stalking the prey from behind. But at the same time, the male lion will come in front of the prey, and, and when he gets close, he'll let out this ferocious roar, this roar that's so powerful that it can be heard for up to five miles away. So he'll let out this ferocious, you know, earth-shaking roar, and they'll be there with their big mane. The sound is so powerful. And hearing that terrifying noise, it causes the antelope or the gazelle or whatever other animal they're hunting, it causes them instinctually to run in the opposite direction. You and I would probably do the same thing. But guess what? Where do they run? Right into the path of the lioness who's been waiting there to catch them and trap them and kill them. See, here's the irony. The male lion may look scary, he may sound scary, but he's more bark than he is bite. And in reality, the safest thing to do, if you were a gazelle, if you were an antelope, the safest thing for you to do would actually be to run towards the roar, not away from it. In other words, the animal's instinct is wrong. Following their gut is the wrong thing to do, and it leads them to their final, you know, demise and downfall. In other words, it's completely counterintuitive, but the right choice for, for that animal would be to override their emotions and their feelings in that moment and actually run towards the very thing that's frightening them. See, it's shocking how often that is true in our own lives, isn't it? Right? There are a lot of times when our instincts make us want to run away, make us want to run away from our difficulties or things that we're scared of or things that make us uncomfortable. But a lot of times it's as we run away from those things that, that we're scared of or that make us feel uncomfortable or danger that we actually run towards the real danger, the true danger, not away from it. See, this is what this promise tells us. Because God is working all things together for our good, we can actually embrace the hard things in our lives. We can actually run towards the roar, knowing that God is going to use them for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. See, because the gospel is true, hardship shapes us, but it doesn't define us. Do you know that? That because the gospel is true, hardship shapes you, but it doesn't define you. See, we, we have the hope of heaven. And because of that, the purpose of hardships in our lives here and now is to shape us, but it doesn't define us. Who you are, what, you, what defines you is who you are in Christ. That's something that can't be taken away from you. Hardships in this life are here to shape you. They're not to define you. That's what we have because of the gospel. And the third act of love is this. He gives us the power to live a new life, verses 10 and 11. In verse 9, we were told that we have been saved from wrath because of the death of Jesus on the cross for us. But verse 10 tells, tells us something very profound. It says that you will be saved. How much more will you be saved by his life? Right? Like you, you're saved by his death from the wrath of God. But how much more will you be saved by his life? And then he says that we have been reconciled to God. And because of, of, of what Jesus did for us, we, are, we have reconciliation. In other words, God makes us his friends. But notice what this is saying. Jesus didn't only die so that one day you can go to heaven. 
No, Jesus rose again. He also rose again to give you the power to live a new life. That's really good news. See, the early Christians, they seem to have talked a lot more about Jesus' resurrection than they talked about his death. And that's understandable because if you think about it, like imagine yourself in, in their shoes, right? And you, you tell somebody, well, we followed this guy named Jesus. And well, where's he at now? Well, he died. If you were to stop there, that wouldn't be a very good story, right? Because anybody can die, wait a couple of years, and then we're all going to do it. Like anybody can do that. That's no, there's nothing special about just dying. See, nobody would be impressed by that. It's not hard to do. But if you would continue the story and you say, okay, yeah, he died. But three days later, he rose again. He was walking around. He had dinner with us. We had breakfast the next day, right? We put our hands in his wounds and felt them ourselves. Now they're listening. What? That doesn't happen every day, right? And what Paul is saying here is Jesus didn't only die so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That's only part of the gospel. No, there's more good news beyond that. He also rose from the grave in order to give you the power to live a whole new life, to be a new person. In verse 9, he said, by Jesus, you are justified so you can be saved from the wrath of God. But verse 10, he says, how much more are we saved by Jesus' life? In other words, his resurrection, his new life. See, that's the incredible thing that we're told in Ephesians chapter 1. Check this out. out. Check out what it says. It says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the, from the dead is now at work in us who believe because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Look at what it said in verse 5, that God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, God's act of love for you is this, that he gives you his Holy Spirit inside of you to transform you and to empower you to live the life that he's called you to live and the callings that he's called you to fulfill. He doesn't just tell you what to do. He gives you the power to do it. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in you so that you can come from death to life, so that you can walk not in the old dead ways, but so you can walk in newness of life as a transformed person and fulfill the callings that God has put on your life. So the action is that God gives us the power to live a new life. And the implication is don't live a dead person's life. That's my message for you today. Don't live a dead person's life. And that is what we're going to be talking about for the next several chapters. That's what the next couple chapters are all about. It talks about putting away the old life and living this new life that you've been given in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to miss that. It's going to be exciting over the next couple of weeks. Here's what I want to leave you with, this last final thought as we close this morning. Love is an action, and God loves you very much. He's proven that to you time and time again. But I can't help but wonder if there are some of you who have heard that so many times that it's kind of lost its force in your life. Where you hear it and you say, yeah, I know. I've heard that a lot. Here's, here's what I want to tell you. Did you know that God doesn't just love you? He actually likes you. I, and, and there's a way in which I think that that can actually be more profound, more impactful. Because there's a sense in which when we talk about love as an action, we can say, well, yeah, love, God is love. And yeah, he has to love me. And of course he died for me, but he also died for a lot of other people. And sure, God loves me. I get it. But here's the thing I want you to know. You in particular, he actually likes you. And I think that's important for us to understand that. He doesn't just love you because he has to. He chooses to. He loves you, and he actually likes you. See, if we separate actions from feelings, this is the downfall of it, is that, that we wonder, okay, well, maybe he's just doing that because he has to. No, I want to tell you this. He actually likes you. 
And if you don't believe that, look at his actions. Look at what he has done for you, for you specifically. He gave his life so that you could be his. He wants to be at peace with you. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to spend now and into eternity with you. And he wants to redeem your life and empower you to live a new life in him. My question for you as we close today is this. Will you receive that? Will you receive those gifts of his grace? Will you say, yes, Lord, instead of looking to myself, I will look to you. I will place my hope and my trust and my confidence in you and you alone. If you do that, let me tell you this. He will redeem and transform your life and you will have the confidence for this life and beyond. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray as we finish. Lord, we thank you for this great truth. Lord, thank you for the evidence that we see in this, that you truly do love us. And Lord, this morning, I pray that that love would sink deep down into our hearts, that it wouldn't just be something that we know and something that we've heard many times, but that we would have a deep sense of it, Lord, as we look at your actions towards us, that we would understand that you love us, that you actually like us, that you don't just love us because you have to, but you choose to place your love on us. So Lord, may we know that this morning. May it bring comfort and may it bring courage and confidence to our hearts as we live this life. Lord, may, may, may we be those who run towards the roar because we have confidence in you. Thank you for these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 